Hello and welcome to Questonia, the place where we ask the questions that we think need answering in Estonian and sometimes Baltic news and culture. I'm Stuart Garlic and I'm here as always with Marys Hellrand. And Marys, who are we talking to today? We'll have a chat with Mike Collier, who's a, a British journalist who's been um, living in Latvia, living and working in Latvia for over a decade and is a, is a great expert in all things Latvian. And um, of course, uh, the, the hot topic for us that uh, brings us together is the Baltic bubble, um, which means that uh, until now, luckily, there still is free movement uh, of people inside the free Baltic countries. But as uh, the infection rates in uh, Estonia and Lithuania are uh, increasing, the bubble is in danger of being burst. Yeah, and there's plenty of questions which we will get into asking on uh, whether the uh, different nation-state approaches of Estonia, Latvia and Lithuania are working and to what extent. And um, we'll also get into the protests in Belarus and the uh, Latvian reaction to them and how the Baltic states are working together to pre- present a unified response there. So uh, here's our interview with Mike Collier. Mike, where does the podcast find you today? Uh, sitting at home near Tesis, or it's Estonian name, Vunnu. Okay, and um, that's a delightful town in uh, the centre of Latvia, uh, surrounded by countryside. Um, really nice place to visit. But, uh, um, Mike, you've been a journalist in Latvia for how long now? Um, I guess 13 or 14 years. So you've you've seen all the big changes, and obviously 2020, fantastic time to be alive if you're a journalist. Um, so... Latvia's handling of the coronavirus uh, has been different to the other Baltic countries and um, there was some reporting in the Estonian media at the beginning of last week that the Baltic bubble, which is the what what we understand as being the name for the the, um, uh, protection of freedom of movement within the Baltic states during the coronavirus situation around Europe, was coming to an end. Uh, This was uh, based on uh, information from Latvia, but that didn't happen in the end. Uh, Freedom of movement between the Baltic states has remained. So um, what occurred in the political situation to, um, to to mean that the Baltic bubble didn't come to an end? And how can we understand this? And is it a good thing? Well, I mean, I think it's important to say that it wasn't necessarily or purely a political consideration. It was grounded in the uh, established medical uh, practice or the medical limits which were set in place, which is that once you have uh, 16 or more cases cumulatively over 14 days per 100,000 of the population, then uh, quarantine, 14-day self-quarantine becomes necessary. And the figures from both Estonia and Lithuania were pointing very clearly, I mean, there have been recent upsurges in cases, unfortunately, that those limits would be breached. Um, Now, they weren't going to be breached by a lot, but they were going to be breached. However, what happened uh, to the surprise of, well, certainly of journalists, (laughs) was that instead of relying on the central European figures, which have been supplied uh, hitherto, 
uh, Estonia and Lithuania supplied uh, their own independent figures, which they said were a little bit more accurate because they were a little bit more up to date, which showed that both stayed just below the 16 threshold and therefore the expectation that uh, there would have to be quarantine imposed unless the rules were changed as well um, was avoided. Now, there was a certain amount of uh, skepticism for various reasons that possibly the figures had been massaged slightly because it did look, you know, it was an unusual thing to do to, to divert from the, let's say, the database which has been used until that point. But I think really what was being done was they were buying themselves another week of time to sort out what's going to happen if and when uh, the figures are breached. Now, Estonia seems to be comfortably over the 16 limit at the moment. It's around 20 to 25, according to the support you look at. And Estonia is hovering around the 16 mark as well. So I think that's why in the last week or so, we've seen the, the debate, as it were, shift slightly from uh, these are the rules and we're going to stick by them because they've served us so well so far to maybe we need to slightly change the rules on quarantine or the limit is about raising the limit to 20 or 25, given that all three of the Baltic states are significantly better than most of the other countries in, in Europe and certainly the rest of the world. If we uh, let, leave the figures aside for a moment, um, uh, because the 16 to 100,000 or 25 to 100,000 or even 50 to 100,000 that is being discussed as a limit um, for freedom of movement inside the EU right now, that these are all basically still quite arbitrary figures and uh, are have resulted in a political compromise between the countries. But uh, uh, I wonder what has oh, sorry, they are arbitrary, but in Latvia's case, they do seem you know they do seem to have worked. The, the, the rate is so low that obviously people are going to be a little reluctant to tamper with a system that seems to have work yes. maybe in other countries it hasn't worked so well and maybe this isn't the reason why it's so low but yeah. you know if you're onto what seems like a winning formula then you're obviously going to be nervous about changing that formula yes but i what i want to get to uh, or where i want to get to is why the why the numbers in latvia are so low because i visited latvia this summer for a mm. week which was a, a brilliant side effect of this uh, <laughs> pandemic so i also and I visited Estonia for a week so you know you see <laughs> so the baltic bubble bubble actually did really um, work in that Absolutely. sense that we did get closer together and i i came to Cesis and uh, to many other places and um to be honest i didn't uh, notice any different behavior in the public sphere of people like in terms of uh, masks being worn more in latvia than estonia i i think i didn't see any pe anybody wearing a mask that was end of june of course maybe it's a different situation now but how do you explain it? Because we have had at the same time, like we've, uh, you've mentioned that um, Estonia and Lithuania last week massaged their figures slightly or they used uh, a different formula to round it down from the 16. But uh, at the same time, we here notice speculations that Latvia has a creative um, way of dealing with its statistics so is that a, a is your perception that latvia 
really is taking more precautions in like Latvians in their daily behavior and daily life than than we do here in in Estonia. Well, it's a very good question, and uh, I, I would agree that yes, when I when I went up to Hapsalu for a week, I didn't really see tremendous uh, changes in, in behavior between Latvians and Estonians. It seems to be pretty similar. Um, I mean, I've got, as Stuart said, I'm not an epidemiologist. I've got a few pet theories. I mean, one is obviously that uh, a low population density helps. And whereas Estonia and Lithuania both have sort of large-ish second cities in Tartu and Kaunas, which which have frequent interaction with uh, the capitals, it's not really the case in in Latvia, and I think that the, case, the, the fact that Riga is so dominant compared to Daugavpils and Liepaja and so on, and there's maybe not so much interaction or travel between the regional uh, cities and the, the capital means that the fact that there haven't been any major outbreaks in, in Riga or any that haven't been contained quite quickly, uh, that might be a factor playing into it. Uh, that's just my kind of pet idea about it. Um, I think what surprises me is I think all, all, all of the Baltic states have a pretty stoical attitude and you would expect things to be aligned a, a little bit better. I think what has set the, the Baltics apart from the rest of Europe perhaps is you know less whinging. People know what a real crisis is. Um, people know what having the freedom taken away really is and they know that being asked to uh, stand two meters away from someone else you know, so that the risk of infection is not actually a massive imposition. Maybe something else is that, I don't know, maybe Latvians socialize a little bit less uh, <laughs> in the capital as well. I mean, particularly the high risk groups that you would be expecting to uh, to kind of have the more fatalities, older people, maybe they live a slightly more isolated life in some respects and that what is historically been quite a bad and sad thing in this case, sort of is, is paying off a little bit. I mean, it, it was kind of, a, kind of a, a joke, but it was also true that at the beginning of the crisis, uh, it, old people, and in fact, uh, others as well, went to the supermarket, bought a couple of kilos of buckwheat, and then they were prepared to sit it out for as long as possible. I mean, there was this sort of stoical attitude. People have been through a lot worse, and, and I think they... They're a lot less hysterical, really. So maybe it's just a sort of Baltic, uh, you know, or Nordic phlegmatism. Um, but as to, I think the other important factor, actually, it has been the position of the government in that the government have not demonstrated hypocrisy. So very, very early in the piece, uh, Prime Minister Courage had been in contact, I think, in, in one of the Brussels meetings with someone who had tested positive. He immediately put himself into 14-day self-isolation, at which point the, you know, the question was, well, can machinery of government continue? And the answer was yes. They very quickly uh, put together a sort of ad hoc system for cabinet meetings. And, and people at that point realized that, well, it's not a case of one rule for us and one rule for them, as it seems to be in some other places. Um, the other important factor, uh, in my opinion, is the people who were put out front to explain the, um, the coronavirus crisis were the epidemiologists. Um, and most notably, there's a guy called Uga Dumpis, 
and another one, Yuris Pedovoshikov. And they're quite contrasting characters. They're both medical professionals who did not sort of sugar the pill. They were not giving information to people that everything's going to be fine, you know, just, just there won't be any disruption. They were saying, well, there's going to be serious disruption, but we want you to do this because it's important, otherwise people will die. And they're contrasting characters as well. So Dumpus is a slightly sort of grumpy, um, verbose kind of guy who you kind of like as well because he's a real person. He's not a sort of polished politician. And then Pedovoshikov is a sort of jolly uncle who will... It's almost like a double act. They're not working on this consciously, but you can see that they're both real people. They also happen to be highly qualified medics, and you trust them, basically. Whereas if you're being presented with what you've got to do by a politician, and you know that part of his motivation is to get re-elected or to not lose votes or to you know, um, court certain business interests that would otherwise be damaged by the coronavirus crisis, um, then, then, then people respond when they're being told real things by real people, I think. It was a bit like what happened in Estonia during the um, economic crisis, where the government didn't, again, try to pretend there's not going to be a big recession. They said, there will be a big recession. It'll hurt for X number of years, and then we'll come out of it okay. And I think kind of what's happened in Latvia is a bit like that, but in the sort of on the medical side of things. And we see a reverse thing happening in Estonia right now because yeah, exactly. That's one of the one of the uh, one of the only real differences I can think is that maybe people just don't think the government have really kind of knuckled down to it the same way. But the the politicians and the government has really undermined the health board uh, from the very beginning and. Uh, um, taken care to disrupt its work as much as possible and uh, listen to the advice of experts as little as possible. And uh, every politician has turned into a uh, epidemiologist uh, overnight. So that's, well, that's uh, one, one other factor I might throw in in the Latvian context is interestingly, the health minister, Ilse Winkela, is kind of one at the start of the uh, uh, corona crisis. She was kind of one of the least popular uh, politicians in the country. You know, she's one of these people who seems to just attract dislike, regardless of whether she kind of deserves it sometimes. I think it's sometimes a certain amount of sexism and sort of patronizing attitude. But from the very beginning, it became really clear that she, she genuinely was working 24 hours a day, doing everything possible, I mean, like even like telling off members of her own party, knocking them into line when they're when they're uh, some suggestion that they might flout the regulations or something. And she actually won widespread respect, even among you know her political opponents. That no one can say she has not been working really hard to try and do her best, and and largely it's been successful. Which is why it's interesting in the, the last week or so, the pressure seems to be mounting on her because she's, she's very clearly backed the medical uh, opinion. And now there is some momentum building along by the sort of economically minded people that, you know, we find the balance between the economy and the medical side, because at the moment it's very much been the medical side that's been driving things and economic consequences we, we then take. Now people are starting to reverse it and say, well, how much, you know, how much of the economy can we afford to lose, which is, which is just a reverse way of saying how many, you know, casualties are we prepared to take? 
Mm. Yeah, it, 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 it's, it's an interesting question because uh, on, on the one side you've got uh, Lithuania, which right from the start took quite a militant approach to things, indoor masking, uh, the gyms remained closed a lot longer after Estonia had reopened them, for example, um, whereas... You know, on, on the other side, um, Ilya Lutzar, the Estonian uh, um, virologist who's been guiding the health board's decision making, has said, you know, any decision we take has got to be something we can live with for three or four years, potentially. So um, I'm not going to use the phrase laissez-faire, but certainly um, the the emphasis recently has been a lot more on individual decision making on behalf of people and families. Um, so... Um, does Latvia lie somewhere between those approaches? And also, does um, the high infection rate in Lithuania relative to Latvia potentially show that um, going militant doesn't necessarily work as well in terms of containing the virus? Well, I think we shouldn't underestimate uh, the, the luck factor. And we should bear in mind that there is still plenty of opportunity for everything to go wrong. And there is a possibility that to a greater or lesser, lesser extent, Latvia has simply been lucky. But the way in which they were lucky, I think, was that the initial lockdown or clampdown or whatever you want to call it, they did pitch it kind of by chance, just about at the limit of what people were prepared to go along with. So in Lithuania, maybe they pitched it a little bit too hard, whereas here, uh, you know, there were restrictions on just certain shops opening at certain times, um, certain gatherings in certain places. It wasn't really a blanket thing. The only, I think that the thing which suggested that it was at this limit was when there was an attempt to introduce, in fact, it was introduced, um, face masks on public transport. Um, it worked for a few days, but very, very quickly, there were quite high, well, very high rates of non-compliance. And at that point, well, you either decide we've got to work harder on compliance and impose penalties and all the you know, complexities of how you're going to enforce those, uh, or you kind of row back on it. And what they did was row back on it so that the, the requirement for public transport was drop sort of with the caveat that, you know, if there's a big outbreak, then we'll have to introduce it again. So that just showed maybe one, one point at which they slightly overstepped the mark in, in terms of what the public was prepared to go along with. Um, but on the whole, I think they were kind of lucky in pitching it just about right. You know, it wasn't total lockdown like we see in Italy or Spain with people, um, you know, locked in their apartments. And in all the Baltic states, but you know, maybe Latvia particularly, a lot of people you can drive out of Riga half an hour. You can spend the day out in the in in the countryside. A lot of people have their uh, the ancestors, their, their their kind of country cottages and things. A lot of people did relocate from Riga for you know a, a week or two. The place right next to me uh, is sometimes hired out for um, sort of Airbnb type uh, things, and and that was kind of long-term booked up by people who were wanted to be out of the city so i think again it's the sort of population density question in somewhere like i don't know london or paris you can't really empty them out and have the population relocate but to a certain extent you can here because there are places for people to go to 
Yeah, well, that's um, that's probably very similar in Estonia as well. Mm. But I just I wonder uh, just if you could describe uh, the daily life right now a little bit. Are people wearing masks on buses? Are they wearing masks in shops? Uh, what? Uh, how does the school work? Because here we have uh, uh, on and off uh, remote learning. How 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 is uh, how is the daily life, the practical life, looking like in Latvia right now? Well, uh, well, this, as far as the, the schools will be the big test, I think. Um, the schools have gone back. Uh, my kids have gone back to school, but there there are additional rules in that you know you as parents you drop them off and you pick them up, and the, the doors are locked during the day, or rather, you know, they're not. People aren't going in and out, so there's a, a certain amount of uh, control there, and things are disinfected and, and, and so on. But we'll see if if we do get breakouts in in schools which are not contained then yes probably would be a switch back to less than perfect um, remote learning and there have been a couple of minor outbreaks um, at, at, well, one that I know of in, at a school in Riga but it was contained very very quickly um, so hopefully that's kind of the shape of things to come if people can stay on alert as far as daily life is concerned no people are not wearing masks in shops I mean a few people do buy uh, their own volition, but it's it, it's not compulsory. But you do see that uh, certain behaviours have changed, and, and I've seen seen this myself. And that yes, now you just stand further away from people uh, when you go to the uh, fruit and vegetable section. You don't you know pick up all the fruit and veg and handle them and put them back. I mean, it's just sort of people being a little bit more civilised, and maybe as they they should have been all along. Um, but on the whole. Uh, I would say that, uh, yeah, it's 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 not really that much difference. Uh, on the intercity buses, you do see people masked, but not on the uh, public transport buses in, in Riga, or rather rarely at least. I mean, again, as I said, that, that could change if there is a major outbreak, but um, so far that, that hasn't been necessary. But uh, bars and so on are open. I mean, there's been a... I think it's the same in Estonia, you know, they've gradually increased the number of people who are allowed to be at a table, say, and they gradually reduced the space between the tables. Um, but it doesn't, it, it's a very difficult thing to enforce uh, or for restaurants and cafes to enforce. So it does, to a large extent, just rely on people's behaviours, I think. And I do find that if we go into a cafe now, even if it's some, um, you know, scuzzy, truckers cafe or something the guys line up and get their chips and their cotlet and just sit a bit further apart than they would do normally so mm. maybe that is the sort of um behavioral change that's required and, and is perhaps more effective than more of the sort of clinical side of things mm. uh, people wash their hands a bit more probably not enough but but a bit more mm. Well, all in all, it doesn't sound so much different from Estonia and the outbreaks I don't think here. It is, no. and, and the outbreaks here have not really resulted in people going to uh, shops and standing closely. But all these, uh, all these core um, core outbreak events right now have actually stemmed from someone someone coming from abroad and not uh, not being in isolation and going to a party and. Um, and the parties uh, have been the superseder events, uh, uh, yeah. more or less. I, I think that actually suggests that possibly another factor in the in the Baltics being quite successful is 
well, for want of a better term, like peer pressure. And because we're quite small and uh, uh, interrelated societies, if if you notice that your neighbour has just come back from Italy and should be in quarantine and isn't, there's a very good chance that he's going to get a knock on the door, <laughs> you know, at some point. And again, at the beginning of the, the crisis, a guy was caught and then he was caught again kind of two days later. And both, both times he got hit with a massive, with a maximum fine, which had only just been introduced. And mm. that sort of thing made people sit up and realise as well. So there is this sort of... Uh, you know, it's the same in Estonia, isn't it? Everyone knows everyone's mm. business. And uh, it's it, when you feel that you're empowered to say you shouldn't be doing this or you need to stand further away from me, um, then then people, you know, will do it. <laughs> yeah. Um, obviously, there is the flip side of that, which is that uh, certainly Facebook groups in Estonia have, um, have been uh, warned or shut down because of corona disinformation. And uh, the, even the, you know, um, very accepted 24-hour coronavirus information group regularly gets spammed by people in the comments saying, um, why are you worrying? We're all going to get it somehow, that kind of thing. Um, yeah. uh, with... Um, uh, Latvia always um, coming under question during election campaigning time because of the potential for Russian disinformation and so on. Um, has there been a great deal of corona disinformation and virus denial and kind of uh, laissez-faire commenting on social media um, or has Latvia managed to bypass that? Yeah, I mean, I, I think there hasn't. I mean, I'm not primarily operating in the, in the Russian uh, information space, but it does seem to me that... Uh, this is something I've noticed for a while and I've never quite been able to work out is Estonia with this sort of reputation for being sensible and cool headed does seem to be more of a fertile breeding ground for these groups of, uh, you know, wackos. And they really haven't gained any uh, uh, traction here. It seems to me um, the only ones who've tried to spread it are a couple of politicians who everyone readily identify as nut jobs. And um, sort of click a couple of clickbait uh, fake news sites, which again, are, are, no one's particularly going to take them seriously. So they haven't really gained any traction, and there isn't that you know clamour for uh, you're impinging upon our rights, you know, my body, my right, all that kind of nonsense. People are just sort of well, you know, grow up a bit, you know. Why do you have to be so selfish if you're going to help save someone's life? By washing your hands, that's not too much to ask, and it's not really worth claiming some sort of constitutional right to act like a dick. So, yeah, the short answer is uh, no. I don't think um, conspiracy theories and disinformation have really uh, gained any traction here at all. Okay. It might have to do with the overall political um, sort of landscape because we have the far right in the government and the far right. Um, uh, supporters tend to overlap with anti-vaxxers and uh, flat earth uh, supporters uh, uh, greatly and uh, with the far right here being much more dominant here than in Latvia that might explain mm. the, the spread of the of the conspiracy theories here as well. Just the recent yeah. study from this week I think uh, showed that about one third of uh, Estonians would not have um, themselves vaccinated once the vaccine gets uh, available so here we go hmm. yeah but i mean that's quite a 
I mean, it depends what the vaccine is, where it comes from, and and you know how trustworthy it is, doesn't it? I mean, I think that's a bit of a kind of loose question. I mean, certainly if you ask people here, would you take this Russian claimed vaccine? Then people would say no. <laughs> but if they can, if it's one which uh, you know, Mister. Uh, Dompis and Perevoshnikov have approved, probably yes. <laughs> mm. um, I, I would love to hear more about the Latvian reaction to the protests in Belarus after the elections there as well, because um, I, I know that there has been a lot of discussion about Lithuania offering asylum to the uh, candidate who many think uh, rightfully won the election, Svetlana Tsikhanovskaya. But... Um, Estonia has been relatively quiet, with the exception of raising it in the UN Security Council. What's the what's the Latvian response been, and uh, do you think it's been strong enough? Um, well, the there's certainly groundswell of opinion amongst uh, ordinary people has been quite powerful. I mean, I've attended a couple of uh, pickets uh, myself. Uh, there was a very good one outside the Belarus embassy, um, which was kind of uh, quite quite uplifting. Um, interesting when you could go on a, a picket and hear you know three or four different languages being chanted <laughs> by a huge crowd which is a, a very unusual uh, feeling so um, I think Lithuania has obviously been to the fore with uh, particularly Foreign Minister Linkovich it's been, it's been uh, very forthright Latvia has been following behind um, a, a little bit but um, there just earlier this week, uh, there was an agreement to you know, send financial support to NGOs. I think something like 40 visa applications have been granted to uh, people wanting to claim uh, political asylum in Latvia. Um, so the, it, it, the support is, is definitely there. Um, I think, the, yeah, the Lithuanians definitely led it. Their president also was a bit more visible. Uh, President Levitz here, I think probably to his regret, was well, there was a very interesting um, statement put out uh, not long after the demonstrations in uh, Belarus uh, started, whereby um, Levitz said, uh, sorry, the, the Lithuanian president um, now said they put out a very quick statement with the Polish president Duda. Uh, and then I think the next day, um, Levitt said, oh, we're going to be putting out a joint statement with um, Lithuania and Poland as well. And when it came out, it also had Kirsty Kalulite's name on it. <laughs> so I think that they had kind of phoned up and said, look, you know, why are we doing this in twos and threes? We should be doing this all together. And since then, there has been a bit more um, coordination, I think, with with the kind of tacit agreement that look, Lithuania is going to lead the way on this and we're going to go along and sort of stand shoulder to shoulder with them. Um, and, you know, given the history that you know, the Belarusian university in exile has been in Vilnius for quite a long time, it does have closer, obviously closer ties to Belarus in, in many ways and more of a, an interest in um, having a democratic uh, force just to, across the border there. I mean, I was in I remember, must be more than a decade ago, being in Vilnius when Lukashenko paid a visit. Uh, it was when President um, Gribauskaita was there. And I was in the same room as them and just seeing Lukashenko made my flesh crawl and all the cronies <laughs> around him all smiling. It was like, you know, Kim Jong-il or something. And uh, so uh, I, I'm very pleased that he's finally seems to be getting what he is 
long, long deserved, over deserved, and the number of journalists he's thrown in prison and worse, and his general, you know, appalling treatment of his society. It's quite uplifting to see uh, what's happening there in Belarus. And I think ordinary people in all the Baltic states, it's so clearly reminiscent of what happened with the Baltic Way and the bravery of the uh, demonstrators that, you know, any politician here who's, who stood up and said, hey, let's, let's not give support too much, you know, it, it might hurt our economic interests, is really going to feel the wrath of, uh, of, of the voters. Uh, I mean, the, the obvious test now is that with Belarus or the Lukashenko regime saying it's going to redirect all of its uh, transit via Lithuania, an awful lot of it goes via Lithuania, uh, it's going to redirect it away from Lithuania. Um, you know, Estonia and Latvia need to be very clear that, well, we're not going to take this business either. I, I think there is just a, a feeling of, you know, there are people like us and they, they deserve to have the same opportunity to make their own decisions that we have. Uh, and it's certainly not this slightly worrying idea that some Western commentators seem to have that, oh, look, this is an opportunity to get Belarus into the West. No, that's not really what it's about. It's about uh, Belarusians having the chance to choose their own path, whether they want to go west or the east or some other direction. That's entirely up to them. Um, so if, if, if it becomes Belarus just being a sort of political uh, game for wonks to the left and the right, then that would be a, a different sort of tragedy. I think really it is just here. It's people look and see Belarusians. It's like another country that was formerly independent and has been effectively still kind of under a, a Soviet system when, you know, 30 years ago, we managed to get rid of ours. I wonder uh, what um, what the reaction in Latvia is to the Belarus uh, situation among the Russian speakers, because here in Estonia, it is quite controversial. And I think this translates into the political speak here as well. Uh, certainly the parties who are relying more on Russian voters are slightly more careful in their expressions of support to the Belarusian uh, um, uh, freedom fight. Um, mm. And uh, and in um, groups and social media, the, the Russian-speaking community seems to be quite fierce about... Um, about uh, the whole regime change agenda and um, sees it in a very different way compared to Lithuania and Linkevichus, for example. Well, I mean, again, it's difficult for me to really comment, not really inhabiting the, 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 the sphere. All I can say is that when I've attended these demos, there's been plenty of Russian voices there as well as Belarusian uh, voices. And I, I think maybe it's particularly a generational thing, younger, maybe older people, uh, when I listen to phone-in shows and things, yeah, you do still get older people phoning in saying, oh, Lukashenko's not so bad, you know, all these mm. cliches about he's a strong man, oh, he takes care of his own, you know, crime is low and all that kind of stuff. But mm. I, I would suggest it's generational and that younger people are a lot more progressive and a lot more uh, of the opinion that, you know, people everywhere, whether it be they Russian or Belarusian, deserve the chance to dictate their own futures and not be ruled by these sort of throwbacks to the 1970s or the 1960s, which is really what they are. 
So I, I would suggest that, you know, you know that uh, Riga is home to uh, some independent Russian media as well, such as mm -hmm. Medusa, and they've certainly been covering uh, Belarus in the context of, uh, let's say, uh, a post-Soviet uh, way, um, mm -hmm. where progressive forces in Russia are taking an interest in what's happening in Belarus for very obvious reasons, in that it provides encouragement that uh, there, there might be another way. So I, I would suggest it's generational. Older people mm -hmm. who maybe have this nostalgia, but, but younger people, Russian and Belarusian alike, don't. That's uh, that's really curious, actually. That's just, that's exactly what's happening here as well. If you listen to the Vox Pop shows and the, mm. and the radio, where old people tend to call in, the the you might get the impression that everyone thinks Lukashenko is, has been doing so great, and that the streets are clean. There are no <laughs> no uh, uh, drug users, no uh, uh, no disabled people and so on so uh you, yes you, and that's you also really a want... function of the fact that at least in latvia the uh, call-in show the most popular one called the uh, brevice microphones happens at kind of uh, about one o'clock in the afternoon mm. so the only people who are really available to call in <laughs> are pensioners and so that you do get a skewed demographic on this yes but it even though i mean pension people who are pensioners today in the year 2020 were uh, like uh, middle-aged people at the front line of the of the freedom fight so how uh, mm. it's just it, i've i've really been surprised to hear these voices in such uh, in such an amount because how how did they forget how horrible life was in the soviet union <laughs> they should <Yeah>. know <laughs> but uh, yes that's uh, that's a side thing Thank you for listening to this episode of Questonia. You can subscribe to the show on Spotify, Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your audio. We'll be back on air in a couple of weeks time. Bye for now.